Let me pray for us as we turn to the Lord's word. Lord, I lift up uh, all of us here. I lift up my, my own heart and my own mind, Lord, and we pray that uh, you would do a wonderful work and that you would do work by your spirit, Lord. You say that you will always send your word out and it will never come back void, but it will do the thing for which you sent it. We pray for your spirit to illuminate our minds, to work powerfully in our hearts and on our wills. Lord, would you give us a sense of your presence and your work uh, in our lives this morning? We offer ourselves to you because you have given yourself to us so freely. In your name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord, Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Why are you standing around? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land you have come to see. And they said, We are your servants. We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with her father, and one is no more. The irony here is powerful. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men... Let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul. When he begged us, and we did not listen, that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed, and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his, his money in the mouth of his sack. 
he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this shall I know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take grain for the family of your households. Go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, and then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they turned, and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, in an act of virtue and uh, valiance, Kill my two sons, if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. There's some tragic favoritism here. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, to the grave. You know, up until this point in Joseph's life, uh, you could title his story, uh, Your Best Life Now. Uh, and actually, most of us would kind of like to stop in chapter 41, right? He's been sold into slavery by his brothers uh, 13 years. He's been in prison. The Lord finally rescues him from this prison. He puts him into the service of the Pharaoh. And now, raised up as the right-hand man of Pharaoh, the person most powerful in Pharaoh's kingdom, He sits over the land and he's distributing this money. He's had seven years of plenty, of relief. I'm sure he's fed well. He's enjoying himself. And you know, it's true that the Lord does uh, delight and enjoy blessing us. He's a good father. He loves to do that. He loves to take us out of horrible situations and bless us. He constantly watches us and attends us. But our Lord is after much more than our personal happiness. He's after much more than that. Our Lord's vision of our life goes far beyond the kind of narcissistic, self-pleasing vision that most of America has for itself. That I have for myself most days. The Lord is much more passionate for us. And His goodness and His holiness this morning are clear precisely because of chapter 42. Because the story continues. He intends, us, uh, intends not simply to leave us happy, but also to make us holy, to make us useful, to make us a blessing. You know, there's a lot of threads in this uh, passage, and uh, it'd be tempting to do them all as you study the word. It gets richer and richer, but we're just going to focus on one thing today, and that is uh, what the Lord is after in bringing Joseph's brothers down to him. What the Lord is after in Joseph's life, and what the Lord is after in his brother's life. God's desire to sanctify his people. So I'm going to talk about three things. Uh, The Lord's process of sanctification, uh, the protocol, which I would have said means, but I wanted to make them all P's. So process, protocol, and then purpose. uh, What the Lord's after in sanctifying his people. 
Uh, but before we move on, I just want to say a brief word about sanctification. Uh, most of us, when we hear that word, uh, we immediately think of uh, the Simpsons character, Ned Flanders, right? Uh, at least I do. Uh, he's, he's the kind of guy who, uh, you know, everything in his life is just kind of prim and, and proper and well, well tended to. Uh, he uh, is constantly in church, and you might imagine he would have kind of a halo over his head. Uh, he may be part of a bowling team, but the name of the bowling team is the Holy Rollers, you know? Uh, so everything in his life has this kind of churchly spin to it, right? Uh, and he obviously gets frustrated but, and depressed and sad, but he always manages to kind of spin it with a cliché. There's a silver lining on every cloud. Uh, he fills the air with these cheap sayings. Uh, he's holy insofar as he has managed to make all of his life look as if uh, God has done something there. Uh, that's the image that uh, most non-Christians hear when they think of, yeah, be holy. And that's the image that most of us hear when you hear the preacher say, be holy as the Father is holy. What I want to say to you this morning is that actually the picture of Christian holiness is nothing like that. It's not like that in the scriptures. It's not like that in even church history. No, uh, the picture uh, that we have in Ned Flanders, that kind of trite, limp-wristed holiness, is not good for anything but justifying yourself and condemning others. It's not even good for Ned. The portrait we have in this chapter uh, of Joseph, he's not made pristine and untouchable after all these years. Uh, he's actually more tender, his passions are more present and more powerful, and yet he's more engaged with the Lord. He's more receptive to the Lord's hand. And this is what the Lord is after us this morning. You know, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just encourage you, uh, what we're talking about this morning is what the character of the Christian life is like. So this is kind of like truth in advertising. What's it actually like? Uh, the Christian life is not pretty, usually. Uh, it's usually not easy, actually. It actually is promised to be very hard, but it always is good and it always increases in glory. So our first point, uh, God's process in sanctification. Uh, God is gentle and firm in sanctifying his complex people. God is gentle and firm in sanctifying his complex people. Uh, it's been 20 years since Joseph has seen his brothers. He had 13 years uh, serving Potiphar and in, in prison, and then seven years now serving Pharaoh. And uh, you get this picture that Joseph is actually fairly content. Uh, and I would be too. Uh, he has had these seven years of plenty, and you can see this in his twins' names. Uh, if you look in 41, 50, and, uh, 51 and 52, he names his twins Manasseh and Ephraim. And as in the scriptures, there's always a reason. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God had made him fruitful in the land of affliction. And there's a sense of kind of relief and rest here, right? He's had all these years of just being barraged, uh, pounded down, and finally the Lord has given him seven years of rest and relief. And actually, it's not just rest and relief. He's actually made him fruitful. Joseph is taking care of the whole nation of Egypt and other nations. It's a blessing for Joseph. What I want to look at is uh, this sense of bitterness and rejection as well. And you see this in the name of Manasseh. It's not simply forgetting the hardship that he had and moving past this hardship. It's moving past this hardship without my father's house. It's not too much to say uh, that Joseph is actually not that interested in reconnecting with his family. 
He's not. He is the most powerful man in Egypt, apart from Pharaoh, and he has had seven years of plenty. Uh, Don't you think he could send someone up to get his family? He knows famine's coming. He's not interested. It's not a forgetfulness because he's too busy. It's a willful forgetfulness. There is coldness and distrust and bitterness present in Joseph's heart. But ultimately we'll see that it's not without warmth or hope. Uh, The Lord is firm in sanctifying his people. And, you know, when we kind of look back over our lives, we can see that it's been gentle and firm. In the moment, it feels unrelenting. Right? Imagine Joseph. He's finally had these years of relief and then turned the corner into famine to the time of kind of hard work. And the Lord brings his brothers, trotting into the middle of his activity. Uh, the Lord is, uh, seems to never give up. He's relentless in his work in Joseph's life, as well as in his brothers. And he won't let Joseph forget what's happened. Not simply to punish him with this memory, but to bring something greater from it. Uh, But the Lord's also gentle. Uh, You can see this in verse 9 and 24. Uh, It doesn't seem gentle, actually, for Joseph. It seems overwhelming. Verse 9, it says, And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed, and he said to them, You are spies. There's a sense when he finally sees his brothers bowing down before him. It recalls not only the dream, but him telling the dream and his brothers betraying him. This crucial moment of betrayal, Joseph immediately tenses up and says, you are spies. I cannot trust you. Verse 24, uh, you see Joseph coming away from his brothers after their confession and he secretly weeps. It says he turned away from them and wept. Uh, for Joseph, it feels overwhelming. But we know that this is the gentle, kind hand of God. Uh, It's gentle because Joseph is not crushed. Uh, Joseph is not demolished under the weight of this pain. No, the Lord's been tending to him for many years. The Lord's been giving him relief and rest. No, it's gentle because Joseph is weakened. He's weakened. He cries. His pain creeps up over him, and he is brought to his knees. Let me just say this briefly. Uh, you know, God is not afraid of overwhelming you. Uh, but it's never uh, cruel or vindictive. It's always uh, for the sake of bringing you uh, to your knees in dependence on the Lord. It's always tender. And it's always gentle. The Lord is not afraid of overwhelming you. And in fact, I'll go farther. Uh, the most powerful emotions you experience uh, in your life, whether anger or fear or uh, bitterness, uh, those are the areas, in fact, that the Lord wants to, to drill in on and come down and plant his kindness in, plant his grace, plant his character. So instead of being characterized by constricting and distrust and pain, you are characterized by mercy and forgiveness. Uh, just an illustration of this, you know, in culinary circles these days, I was a waiter for a number of years, and uh, in restaurants, kind of the cool thing to do is to take uh, bad cuts of meat and make them palatable. So, uh, you know, before we left St. Louis, friends and I went out, and I had beef tongue, a beef tongue Reuben, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, the beef tongue's not really the first thing you go for. And the problem with a lot of these cuts is that if you cook them the wrong way, they turn into like a brick, right? We've all had our fair share of chewy brick beef. 
Um, and, you know, it's kind of this, like, uh, like muscle flexing on Cook's part. Like, I can take this piece of beef that no one will want to cook ever, and I can make it good. I'll make it soft. I'll make it juicy. I'll make it tender. Uh, the trick, though, is how you apply the heat. The trick is how you apply the heat. I was going to put this in as the uh, quote for today, but I figured I wouldn't confuse people. Uh, this is from a cooking blog. If you're curious about how cooking in this fashion makes tough, leathery meat tender, it's done by cooking the meat slow, moist, covered, over low heat for a lengthy time. This process breaks down the tough connective tissue in meat called collagen. Through time, the moisture and heat build, and the collagen dissolves into gelatin. Heat also contracts and coils the muscle fibers. Over time, these fibers expel moisture and the meat becomes dry. But given even more time, these fibers relax and absorb the melted fat and melted gelatin. As for the vegetables, braising breaks down all the cellulose in them and stretches the starches. The long and the short of this is that everything becomes very tender. So braising meat is about breaking down tough connective tissue and changing it into collagen by applying moist heat for a period of time, depending on what you're cooking. With more time and heat, the collagen breaks down into gelatin. I love food. Uh, no doubt, though, if you were to roast these same pieces, what would happen is they'd, uh, they'd seize up. But you set them in a slow cooker, braise it, supple, beefy, wonderfulness. Okay? Uh, this is some of the best food I've had, is these tough muscles that get worked all the time, used. And the cook has taken them, he's cooked them slow, and all this wonderful use turns into wonderful, supple, beefy flavor. Most of us are chewy beef. Uh, our lives, uh, we've been used quite a bit. Uh, we've put ourselves to hard things. We've gone through a lot of pain. All of us, and this is the good thing, uh, the Lord has given you uh, ability to protect yourself, but all of us are full of connective tissue, things that help us keep our composure, keep yourself together. God's a good cook. He's patient and careful in his application of heat. He works on us in steady, warm, gentle, and firm ways. And this is what he's doing with Joseph. This is the beginning of the slow cooker. No doubt it's true for many of you as well. The Lord intends to make you supple and beautiful, but will likely be at the cost of your composure. It will likely be at the cost of your composure. The other thing I love about this passage is that uh, Joseph is fairly complex, right? It's not as if his brothers show up and he says, Guys, I've been waiting for you. It's so good to see you. I've forgiven you. The Lord's been merciful to me. I'm ready. I'm ready to forgive you. And if we were to kind of wash over this passage, we'd say, Yeah, you know, Joseph is merciful and he's ready to forgive and we'd expect that and we'd want to make that a, a, a paradigm for what it is to reconcile. But that's actually not what happens at all. Uh, Joseph has this mix of distrust and hope. Joseph's guardedness is not wrong. In fact, it's too simple and naive to say that uh, the Lord commands us to trust all the time. No, that's ridiculous. It's certain, certainly normal and even justifiable to present a cold heart to these untrustworthy abusers for Joseph. In fact, what's clear is that only God can open his heart once he sees that they have changed it's only something that God can do in them to bring about softness in Joseph. I just want to say that uh, 
sanctification is always more complex than simply be reconciled. No. There's a process to it. But it's also seasonal. You know, the Lord kind of works in Joseph's lives in different ways at, at different times. There's seven years of rest and relief, and now there's seven years of famine, hardship, and slow cooker. He's, the Lord is breaking him down. And it's always, always, always messy and painful. The Lord's process is always messy and painful. And there's a misconception that all of us have with the Ned Flanders picture that once we're sanctified, we will be more pristine and untouched. And, you know, just to kind of continue the culinary uh, illustrations, we kind of imagine uh, sanctific sanctification turns you into like a boiled ham, you know, uh, pink and clean, and there's kind of a layer of coagulated gelatin around it. Just, there's nothing wrong with it. It's clean. Even pregnant ladies can eat that. That's wrong. It's wrong. The truth is that God's gracious, sanctifying work always takes account, into account who you are, and it actually may leave you for a while more raw than when it started. Uh, no, sanctification turns you into slow-smoked pulled pork. Crispy, tender, and juicy, and lovely. I'll just mention this briefly. It, what I'm saying here is that this is all of the Spirit's work. Uh, this is nothing Joseph concocted, right? Joseph's not eager to see his brothers. The brothers are not eager to see him. This is something God is orchestrating. This is the Spirit driving this along. And the Spirit does this in our lives. So how does God sanctify his people? We've looked at the process, but what's the protocol? What's the means that God uses to make his people more holy, more merciful, and into people of integrity? God sanctifies his people through confession and mercy. This is our second point. God sanctifies his people through confession and mercy. So we'll first look at his mercy to the brothers, Joseph's mercy to the brothers. He's certainly marked by distrust and pain in his interactions, but it's never without mercy or hope. And I just want to take a little minute to think about this. Uh, you see this in his testing and in his actions. Uh, in verses 15 and 16, he gives them these tests, right? He says, uh, go and bring your younger brother. Uh, send one of you, let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. And he even makes it an easier test. He keeps only one of them and sends the rest. Uh, you know, the fact is, uh, they don't deserve to be tested. Right? Joseph has reason and cause uh, to just kick them out altogether. Uh, but he tests them in hope. He actually wants to see them. He loves his brothers, and he can't help but want to have this relationship restored. And yet, what? Uh, he tests them in his kindness. And this testing uh, is uh, related to uh, kind of like the way you, uh, people would melt metal and sift out the impurities. It's a word about metallurgy. Uh, he's testing them to see what's really in them, not to be vindictive or manipulative. He's not trying to get vengeance here. Uh, and in fact, the test is really only about a couple things. Uh, they claim to be honest. They claim to be men of integrity. Uh, but he tests them uh, to see whether they are loyal, whether they have fraternal loyalty, whether they're loyal to their brothers, or whether they're opportunistic. Uh, you know, and just as a side note in this passage, there's all these words about testing, verification, truth, honesty, integrity. Uh, all these words in one passage are fairly rare. I just want to take a moment and say, you know, it's not uh, surprising 
that people will not trust your words, even if they're true words, if your character is actually in question. And that's not because of who these people are. It's actually character and truth always go together. True words and true character always go together. And that's what Joseph is after. He suspects that they want to come and see the nakedness of the land. It refers to the weakness of the land and its state of famine. He suspects that they're coming in and they're going to use this, uh, the trust again of the nation to welcome in these foreigners and they're going to abuse it, just like they did with Joseph. So 18 and 20, verses 18 and 20, we see this test for fraternal loyalty, for his, uh, whether the brothers are loyal to each other and to him. He has them kind of gently go through a little bit of what he's gone through, right? He was in prison for years and years, and he puts them in custody for only three days. But the question for them is, once they've gotten their grain, he gives them grain for the families, once they've gotten their grain, will they leave and never look back? Are they happy to leave Simeon in custody just like they left Joseph? Are they happy uh, to only have their needs met and disregard any loyalty they might need to have to each other? Verse 25, you see him testing for their opportunism, seeing if they are opportunistic. You see, he puts their money back in their bags, and it says silver. He puts their silver back in their bags. That's the word for money. You know, the brothers sold Joseph for silver. And in fact, Joseph, what he's doing is recalling this act that the brothers went through. They sold their brother for silver, they took the silver in their hands, and they concealed what happened. And now he's put the silver back in their bags, and he's saying, what will you do? You now have money that is not yours. You should have paid this money to us for this grain. Will you come back and rescue your brother? And if you do... Will you conceal your illicit profit? Will you conceal your opportunism? Or will you stand in truth and integrity? Will you fess up? He's trying to see if they're still willing to take the trust others give them and take what they want. Joseph is merciful to test them, not only for his own sake, but just to see what's in them. But he's also merciful to them in his actions. Uh, you know, verse 17, he locks them up and it certainly doesn't speak of tenderness, but you have to remember, uh, it's surprising that Joseph is merciful as he is. Right? It's surprising that it's not a bloody scene. Just imagine what most of us would want to do if we were in Joseph's shoes. You have all the power in the world. And now your abusers come and they bow down before you and you have every ability to take out vengeance. But what's he do? He sends them home with grain. He gives money back in their bags and he sends most of them home not to worry his father. This is clearly the result of God's mercy to Joseph. If, God had not, if Joseph had not seen God's mercy to him as an arrogant adolescent saying, you all will bow down to me. If, God, if Joseph had not seen God's mercy to him, uh, we certainly would not be seeing this kind of mercy to the brothers. But more than any of this, God's mercy is seen in ferreting out the truth from the brothers. Joseph is certainly not this kind of neutral figure here. He's mixed. But God uses all of this not only to bring confession for Joseph to trust him, but for the brothers to see who they really are. And this is the second thing I want to look at. The brothers' confession uh, is how God sanctifies them, all of them. In verse 21, we see this uh, powerful confession in front of Joseph. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw 
the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. They have had cold and evil hearts for a long time. They've been hiding their guilt for a long time. And now, the Lord brings about their true confession. They finally become, come to grips with who they really are. You know, this is uh, true for me in my own life as well. Uh, that's through the process of testing that I finally came to, came to grips with who I am and what the Lord has Uh, what I've done. Uh, You know, I grew up in the church, and uh, I'm sure I heard the gospel at various points, but whatever the reason is, I certainly did not understand the gospel for a long time. Uh, And in my mind, Christianity was this. uh, God's nice for nice people, and you do nice religious things together, and that's Christianity. And, uh, you know, if that's what Christianity is, it's a big waste of time. (laughs) I figured that out. If that's all that Christianity is, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be a part of this. Certainly not addressing my loneliness, whatever pain I've had. So I started rebelling with vigor. Uh, I was in middle school. I started rebelling heavily. Started entering the drinking scene and the party scene. All sorts of stuff that don't bear mentioning. Uh, you don't leave the church unless it seems empty and dead. Well, that continued until my parents divorced, and, uh, you know, I love my parents, and they are wonderful people, and when they come, I would highly encourage you to to meet them. They are phenomenal people, and I love them very much, but I hate the divorce. I hate the divorce, and uh, the mark it's left on me and my family and and my parents, too. But now, now I thank God for my parents' divorce because it was my parents' divorce. It was them falling apart that finally I was able to come to grips with who I was that I was not some sort of neutral actor, that I was not uh, simply subject to this weird religion. No, I was actually standing in the face, standing before God, the very one who I had been flipping off for years. It was through this pain in my family that uh, God made me face Him as I really was, without the pretense, without my self-deception. Never mind my parents, I had been rebelling against God for a lot longer. The one who'd been holding me lovingly and tending to me lovingly. Only the Spirit of God can do this. You know, I don't know why I became a Christian in one sense. I have no idea why the gospel made sense to me that night. But it did. And that's the work of the Spirit. Only God's Spirit can make you softer in the midst of your crises, in the midst of your testing. I don't know what you're going through. I know there's a lot going on in the congregation. I hear it. But I don't know uh, all of it. Calvin says this about the passage. The Lord had compassion on them and took away their deceitful covering under which they had hidden for so long. In the same way, when God daily chastises us by the hand of man, he draws us as guilty people to his tribunal. Never mind anyone else. God draws us, me, as guilty people. It would hardly benefit anyone to be tried by adversity unless his heart was touched. For we see how few reflect on their sins even when they're admonished by the most severe punishments. So there's no doubt that God, in order to lead the sins of Jacob to repentance, impelled them, both by the secret instinct of his spirit 
and by our chastisement to be conscious of the sin that had been concealed for too long. You have to see, you have to see that this is the beginning of God's grace taking root in the brothers' lives. Them finally saying to each other, this is because of this evil we did. Finally naming what they did as evil. Finally coming out into the light. The warning here for us is in the person of Reuben, in verse 22. He says, Did I not tell you to not sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. You know, Reuben did try and rescue his brothers, uh, his brother Joseph from the other brothers plan to kill him. But at the end of the day, Reuben goes back with all the other brothers and lies to his father. He's complicit in the act. Reuben covers his own guilt. But now he stands with his brothers. They're confessing and he says, You guys, I told you not to do this. You should have listened to me. He shows all those same marks of self-defensiveness, self-righteousness that so easily characterize us. Brothers and sisters, uh, do not let your heart be like Reuben when you see others confess. Soften your heart. Come into the light as the brothers. And nothing can be further from the character of Christianity. Uh, Even Christ himself, to vouchsafe our sins, to to vouchsafe our lives, uh, to bring us back to God, pledges his own life. He identifies with sinful people. Uh, Jesus exposes himself to punishment that wasn't even his own. God is not simply merciful to us for our own sake, however. Uh, He's also merciful to Jacob, or to Joseph and to his brothers for the sake of their whole family and for the sake of the families of the whole world. And that's our third point, and I'll try and keep this quick. God sanctifies his people for the sake of their family and all the families of the world. So Joseph has been in uh, the Lord's service, in a sense, and uh, distributing bread and grain to all the people who've in this famine. Uh, and the Lord's been using Joseph in this wonderful way, and he's acting as uh, someone saving the world, in fact. People would be dying without him. And yet the Lord's not content simply to use him. The Lord is also after uh, blessing and sanctifying Joseph, purifying him. Uh, His mercy to Joseph is never separated from his mercy to mature and sanctify him. His mercy to use him in his service is never separated from the grace of God to Joseph as a son. The Lord is intent on seeing you take uh, more and bigger risks on him, relying on him more and more heavily being more and more receptive to his providence, no matter how taxing or what may you may lose as a result. Uh, if you are a member of the, uh, the body of Christ, you are in service, just know that the Lord is actually intent on not only uh, using you for his service, but also blessing you individually, purifying you, sanctifying you, maturing you, seeing a heartier loyalty to him out of tender love. So that's the first thing. He's faithful both to the servant and to the service. But it, God also works in families. And this is kind of the main thing I want you to hear this morning. Uh, you know, God has always been about working through families as families for the sake of all the families. And you see this in Genesis 12. Uh, God promises to Abram, he says, I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse. And in you, 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, Joseph is blessing all the families of the earth. This promise is coming true. Joseph is feeding all the families of the earth. But now the Lord's work is about blessing his family, reconciling his family. You know, this is part of the reason why we take our children so seriously here. Because God is actually committed to working in families as families. He's never uh, simply content to simply rescue you out of your family and never mind what happens to them. No, he's actually intent on making families that are tiny sanctuaries of the grace of God, of his care, of his character. This is also why honoring your father and mother shows the character of the gospel. Uh, You see, for Joseph, uh, the Lord is telling him, uh, it's not enough. It's not enough to take care of the rest of the families of the world. You also need to be soft and reconciled. Uh, Honoring your father and mother, maintaining those relationships, however, does not mean sweeping their sins under the rug. It doesn't mean acting as if they've never done anything wrong. Uh, Rather, it means uh, being a persistent presence of grace, persistently gracious, persistently humble persistently present. I know uh, many of you come from horrible families, uh, families where horrible things have been done, and uh, I'm not asking you by calling you to honor your father and mother to forget those things or to deny them. In fact, that's unloving to deny those things. It does not honor your parents to sweep those things under the rug. But you do need to know this. Uh, While the Lord does not call you To deny those things, the Lord certainly calls you to mercy in the process, to humility in the process of reconciling with your family, to persistent, warm, gentle presence with your family. You need to know this, and I need to know this, that God is actually committed to working through us, uh, not only for the sake of all the families of the world, but for our own, for our own as well. God is committed to working through you in this way. Uh, It may be the Lord saved you out of a horrible family, but the Lord is certainly intent on using you as uh, salt and light in that family. It may not be that you see the fruit of it immediately. It may take years. You may never see it. But the Lord is certainly about using you in this way. It takes wisdom. It takes prayer. And certainly it takes dependence on the Lord and trust in the Lord's hand. And that's what we have in Joseph. Joseph is receiving this act from the Lord, receiving his brothers. Even though he doesn't want to, he sees the Lord bringing his brothers and he receives them in mercy. You know, Jesus uh, had a family too. And uh, you see it multiple times. Uh, His brothers reject him. His brothers are going down to this feast and they say, Jesus, aren't you coming too? Aren't you the Savior? You know, aren't you going to show yourself to everyone? Prove it? They mock him in his face. And they certainly never stuck their necks out to defend them, right? Jesus' brothers were not there on the day of the crucifixion, as far as we can tell. But it was actually through his rejection by his family that all of us, all the families of the earth, are welcomed into God's family. It's actually through Jesus' rejection and mocking from all the families of the earth that all of you and I are welcomed into his people. Uh, Jesus 
by being so merciful and so vulnerable as to take on all the rejection of the world and all the hatred, all the betrayal. He actually bought for us a place at his family's table. Uh, the encouragement this morning, brothers and sisters, is that the Lord is actually committed uh, to using you in your families and to rescuing you. It may be just as painful as Jesus' relationship with his family, but it certainly will be glorious and good. It certainly will be glorious and good. I'll just encourage you with one last thing. The Lord is working every day to bring us nearer to himself. And you see this in Joseph's life. It starts, it starts with coming into the light. Bringing all of your sin, bringing all of your pain into the light and being vulnerable with the Lord to his kind and patient love. Will you resist his love? Come to him. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just thankful to uh, I'm thankful to have this image of Joseph as one who softens his heart to his brothers even though he's uh, immediately stuck, struck by distrust and hardness. Lord, I confess that I uh, am characterized by the same things. Would you work in us humility, Lord, and mercy for our families, evil or wonderful though they be? We pray, Lord, that you would use us to bless the families, but moreover, that you would use us, uh, that you would sanctify us, Lord, that you would purify us and make our hearts tender, tender and soft before you. Lord, we give you ourselves because of your great love. We pray you do these things uh, because you have promised and out of your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.